I want to reaffirm those two warnings. I want to begin by saying that we're addressing a very painful topic today. Some of us here might be divorced and remarried ourselves. Some of us here might have very close family and friends who are divorced. You yourselves know too well the pain that divorce brings. Some of us here may not have such close family and friends who are divorced. And I want to say to you that it is a painful thing. It seems like a very obvious thing to say, but in the world we live today, I think I need to say it, it's become increasingly common for couples to announce their divorce on Instagram. Uh, This is often accompanied with some kind of photo symbolizing a new start, you know, the dawn of a new day. Some couples even take a selfie of themselves smiling together and share it like they would an engagement photo, believe it or not. And they share it using the hashtag divorce selfie. You know, these kinds of posts give the impression that divorce brings freedom and happiness. It's not that bad. It's actually a good thing. But Instagram and social media is the world of unreality. Because we show the good and we filter out the bad, We only share the best side of our lives, which means we share an unreal version of ourselves. So don't let the filters of social media desensitize you to the reality of divorce. Because while not all divorces are bitter, there's always pain and there are always ongoing consequences. There's pain for the couple, for any children involved, their wider family and circles of friends, and for Christian couples for their church family as well. Divorce is so painful because it's a shattering of the most intimate human relationship. And while the wounds may slowly heal over time, the scars always remain. Second, we're addressing an incredibly complex topic today. There are very difficult questions and very few easy answers. For example... Is it ever acceptable for a Christian to divorce? If so, what are the permissible grounds for divorce? What happens in the case of domestic abuse? If a divorce does take place, does this entail the freedom to remarry? There are many questions like this. And even if we were to agree on all the answers to to these questions, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be straightforward in applying the Bible's teaching to each particular case, because the circumstances in each case are unique and different, and appearances can often be deceiving. And more often than not, uh, attributing fault is not a simple matter. It's not as simple as saying it's your fault and it's not your fault. So given the nature of this topic, how painful and how complex it is, let me outline two expectations you should have as you listen today. The first expectation is this. First, expect to be challenged by God's word. And that's going to be true whether you're married, you're divorced, you're remarried, you're single, whatever situation of life you're in, you're going to be challenged to be God's word because we've all been shaped by our upbringing and the cultural air that we breathe. And one of the greatest dangers that we can fall into is that we force God's word to align with our cultural attitudes rather than letting God's word speak for itself and to speak into our world. 
So Jesus' teaching is going to challenge us today, and it's probably going to offend a lot of our long-held assumptions. So the next 30 minutes isn't going to be easy listening. The second expectation is this. Expect this to be only the beginning of an ongoing conversation. Now, Matthew 19 is one of those key passages in the Bible on this topic, but the Bible has more to say about this topic elsewhere. So while I'll touch on these other passages, my focus today is on Matthew 19. And while I believe that this sermon faithfully reflects the teaching of the Bible, others, and I might add much wiser people, have reached different conclusions. Other people who, like myself, hold to God's word as our authority in, this, in all matters of faith, they have reached different conclusions. And so I want to say, don't expect the next 30 minutes to be the only listening that you will need to do. We all need to keep on listening to God's word in conversation with one another. And we need to do so with an open mind and a great dose of humility. So with these kinds of warnings and expectations in mind, let's ask for God's help as we think about this topic. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given your word to us for our good. As we come to consider your word on divorce and remarriage, please help us to listen humbly and to respond eagerly, that we might live out your purposes for us, for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage begins with the Pharisees asking Jesus a question about divorce. Verse 3. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, this question reflected a debate that was going on in Jesus' day among the Jewish leaders. You see, there was one group, um, uh, and, and this debate was about Deuteronomy 24, which we read earlier. You see, one group, Rabbi Shammai and his followers, they interpreted the phrase, some indecency, to refer specifically to sexual indecency. And so, they said, that divorce is only allowed in the case of a wife's sexual unfaithfulness. Now, there was another group, group, Rabbi Hillel and his followers. They interpreted the phrase, some indecency, more broadly. They took it to mean divorce was permissible for any cause of indecency. And uh, as Rabbi Hillel wrote himself, even in the case of a poorly cooked meal. If your wife cooks you, the husband, a poorly cooked meal... That was indecent. That was grounds for divorce. See, we've got two groups here. One's a lot more narrow. One's a lot more broad. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask, well, what do you think? When is it lawful to divorce? Now, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't respond by taking one side or the other. Instead, he responds by quoting the Genesis account of creation. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see in verse 4, Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, to highlight God's creation of the two sexes. God made humanity male and female. And then in verse 5, Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to explain the reason for the two sexes. The reason is so that they might be united as one in marriage. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now, this language of, of leaving and then holding fast, uh, and holding fast literally means to be glued to, this language signifies the beginning of a new union. A new union which God intends to be a permanent union. Because, as he goes on to say, the two shall become one flesh. The metaphor of one flesh highlights the deep deep intimacy of marriage, doesn't it? An intimacy which is most vividly expressed in the sexual union of husband and wife. As Bonhoeffer puts it, the two who remain two as creatures of God become one body. Marriage is a close and binding and permanent union. Now, there's a reality TV series, you've probably heard of it, on Channel 9 called Married at First Sight. Has anyone watched that show before? Okay, a few ashamed hands. I've never been able to bring myself to watch it, but I've watched enough ads during the tennis to know what it's all about. Now, in this show, participants are matched by so-called relationship experts, and then they get married, and then they live together. And throughout this series, they come together at these commitment ceremonies and they choose whether or not to continue in this marriage. Now, these marriages aren't actually legal in Australia. Uh, they're just put on for show. Because in Australia, you need to lodge a, uh, an intention to uh, get married a month and a day before the wedding day. So these weddings that you see on the show are done for show. Okay, But nonetheless... Uh, This show reveals the underlying attitudes of our culture towards marriage. You see, marriage is this kind of private arrangement between two individuals, and it's designed for the fulfillment of your own desires, right? And so if this arrangement ceases to fulfill you any longer, you just walk away from it at any time. And sadly, these attitudes are reflected in the fact that one in three marriages in Australia end in divorce, But that's not how the Bible sees marriage at all, because the Bible speaks of marriage as a permanent one flesh union. And so Jesus concludes in verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus' response teaches us something very important when it comes to our ethical reasoning on this topic. When we come to think about this topic, see how Jesus reasons. He shows us that that the proper starting point for any discussion on divorce is God's purposes for marriage. That's where he starts. You see, the Pharisees started from the divorce legislation of Deuteronomy 24. They come to Jesus and they say, when's it okay to divorce? But Jesus takes them back to creation and and he asks another question. He asks, what's God's purposes for marriage? In other words, the first question isn't what the Pharisees asked. The first question is what Jesus answered. What's God's purposes for marriage? And we find out that God created marriage as a one flesh union. And God intends for it to be lifelong. And that's why Jesus rejects divorce as a violation of what God created from the beginning. Now, of course, this wasn't the answer that the Pharisees wanted to hear. Because they wanted to know when it was okay to divorce. And so they come back to Jesus and they insist on an answer to their question. 
They remind Jesus of the divorce legislation in Deuteronomy 24. Verse 7, they come to Jesus again and they ask, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, what's the assumption that the Pharisees have here? The assumption is that Moses commanded divorce. But that's not actually true. You see, come back with me to Deuteronomy 24. Uh, Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24, and it's on page 165 of your pew Bibles. And let's read carefully uh, what the words here actually say. I want you to notice that in verse 1, it begins by saying this. When? When a man takes a wife, and it goes on. It goes on to describe a situation in which a husband has divorced his wife, and then this woman marries another man, but then this second marriage comes to an end. And only in verse 4, in verse 4, does it say, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again as his wife. It's only in verse 4 that Moses commands something, and it's not about divorce, it's about remarriage. In other words, a divorce has already taken place, and Moses' command is putting a particular limit to remarriage. The Pharisees assumed that Deuteronomy 24 was evidence of God's approval for divorce. They assumed that God had commanded divorce, but Jesus corrects them. So come back with me to Matthew 19 now. In Matthew 19, Jesus replies, and read his words carefully, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses didn't command divorce. He did no more than allow it. It wasn't a command, it was a concession. It was a concession because of their hardness of heart. In the Bible, hardness of heart describes an attitude of rebellion against God. And so it was the sinfulness, the rebellion of God's people that made it necessary for Moses to make the appropriate provisions and put limits to remarriage. And so Deuteronomy 24 was given in an attempt to bring some kind of order to a very messed up situation. You see, it protected, it was designed to protect the woman. It was designed to protect the twice-divorced woman by preventing divorce and remarriage from becoming, as one commentator put it, some kind of legal form of committing adultery. You see, it stopped a man from divorcing his wife, going off with another woman, and then when he finished having his fun, to take his former wife back. Deuteronomy 24 was a concession because of men's hardness of hearts. But divorce is always always a contradiction of God's intention for marriage. Because as Jesus says again, he goes back to creation again and he says, from the beginning, it was not so. In our culture, divorce is often promoted as preferable uh, than staying in a bad marriage, than staying in a difficult marriage. Uh, I did a Google search. It's not very hard to find Articles with some kind of title like top 10 reasons that divorce is better than staying in a bad marriage or something similar like that. Now these articles, I might add, aren't talking about abusive marriages. They're talking about unhappy marriages. 
And they're saying it's better you leave an unhappy marriage. And they give reasons like, it clears the way for you to meet the right partner. You get to focus on yourself for once. You'll feel happier. And if you feel happier, your children will feel happier. In other words, divorce is promoted not only as uh, acceptable, but actually good. If you're not happy and you get a divorce, you're doing yourself and your children a good thing. But Jesus rejects any such understanding of divorce. Divorce is never morally good because it's evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. Now let me clarify what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that everyone who has been divorced was guilty of sin in the act of divorce. Sometimes, one spouse is clearly the perpetrator and the other spouse is clearly a victim. Nevertheless, when divorce occurs, it's always demonstrating a breakdown in relationship which is contrary to God's intention for marriage. And so, there's no such thing ever as a good, a good divorce. Divorce is never viewed positively in the Bible. It's always a tragedy because it's not what God intended from the beginning. Following this, Jesus adds his teaching, uh, adds his teaching on remarriage. In verse 9, he says, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In other words, divorce in and of itself isn't an act of adultery, but Jesus says that divorce followed by remarriage is because it involves at least one of the divorced persons entering into a sexual union with another person. The exception is in the case of sexual immorality. Why? Because sexual immorality strikes at the very heart of the one flesh union. The one flesh union that is most vividly expressed by the sexual union of the husband and wife, sexual immorality strikes right at the heart of that. And so I want to ask, are you close to committing sexual immorality? Is there another person that you have your eye on? Jesus says to us, tear it out and throw it away. What drastic action do you need to take to stop yourself from committing sexual immorality? Do you need to stop taking a second look? Do you need to stop sending and receiving those suggestive messages? Do you need to stop having private conversations? Do you need to stop meeting alone for coffee? For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Have you committed sexual immorality against your spouse? You must not hide your sin any longer because nothing is hidden from God's sight. God knows your secret, He knows your sin. You know, King David tried to hide it, but God saw it all. Trying to hide from your sin is like trying to run away from your shadow. It's not possible. Hebrews 4 tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. 
Sooner or later, your sin will be exposed, if not in this life, then on the day of judgment. So if you have been unfaithful, you must repent now. You must confess your sin to your spouse, and you must confess your sin to God. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Repent of your sin now or be faced with it before God on the day of judgment. Because sexual immorality strikes at the very heart of the one flesh union of marriage. In such cases, the innocent party is permitted to divorce and remarry. However, I want you to note that this exception or this permission isn't the focus of Jesus' teaching. We must be careful that we don't fall into the same attitude as the Pharisees who are always looking for loopholes in the law. Because in this passage, Jesus keeps on emphasizing the permanent nature of marriage as God intended from the beginning. In other words, his focus is on teaching a high view of marriage over against a lax view of marriage which is why the disciples bracked with such astonishment. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. If this is what marriage is meant to be, why get married at all? It's better not to get married than to get stuck in something you can't escape, right? Well, how does Jesus respond? He says in verse 11, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Is it better not to marry? Jesus says that not everyone can receive this saying. Not everyone can live this way. The reality is that most people will get married, and for these people, however hard it may get, Jesus calls them to a life of faithfulness. His his words in verse 6, he never takes them back. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Yes, most people will get married, but some do live the celibate life. And Jesus says that's perfectly legitimate. Jesus goes on to speak about three sets of circumstances that lead people to live a celibate life using the metaphor of eunuchs. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. There are eunuchs who have been so by birth. That is, those who are uh, in some way naturally inclined towards the celibate life. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That is, those who have been forced into a celibate life by the actions of others. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, that is, those who voluntarily choose to live a celibate life for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In our sex-obsessed culture, celibacy is a bad thing. You know, this is the message we hear all the time on TV and in Hollywood movies, isn't it? It's the basic premise of movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, In this movie, Andy, the main character, is a middle-aged man who lives alone. 
And when his co-workers find out that he's still a virgin, they're absolutely shocked. And the whole movie is about them trying to fix this situation. The whole movie is about them trying to help him lose his virginity. Celibacy isn't a good thing in our culture. It's a problem that needs to be solved. Now, such a view can be true inside the church as well. Uh, Ed Shaw, a pastor in England, he tells of a conversation he had with another Christian leader once. The opening two questions were about his age. Ed was 26 at this time. And, his, and the second question was about his marital status. Uh, he was single, and he still is. And the third question was, well, why aren't you married? Because in this person's mind, the fact that Ed wasn't married yet, for a person of his age and his life stage, that was a real problem. And we might have this mindset too, that people are somehow incomplete until they've met their other half. But the Bible makes it very clear that celibacy is not a bad thing. Jesus holds it out as a perfectly legitimate way of life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 promotes celibacy as a good gift from God that enables undivided devotion to the Lord. So the Bible views celibacy very positively. Uh, Why is that? We have to ask. Why does the Bible view celibacy so important if Marriage is the most intimate human relationship there is. And their answer is because human marriage isn't the final goal. In other words, if you're married, you haven't reached the pinnacle of human relationships, and if you're single, you haven't missed out. Because the story of the Bible is that there's a greater marriage to come. And this marriage, everyone is invited to be uh, joined to. It's foreshadowed in the Old Testament which uses the language of marriage time and time again to describe the relationship of God and his people. You know, the Israelites are so unfaithful, but God keeps pursuing them. And it's elaborated upon in the New Testament, which speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. And it points to the day of Jesus' return as the marriage day. The marriage day in which believers will be united with him forever. The message of the gospel is that God invites you, whether you're unmarried or married or divorced or remarried or widowed, God invites you to be joined to Christ forever in heaven. So do you see why Jesus insists so strongly on the permanence of marriage? And do you see why Jesus holds out celibacy as a perfectly legitimate way of life? Because human marriage foreshadows the great heavenly marriage, the marriage to beat all marriages. Let me draw these thoughts together as we talk about Christian discipleship in this area of human relationships. And I want to offer five things for you to consider and to keep talking about. First, faithfulness is the heart of marriage. The heart of marriage is not personal happiness or satisfaction. It's not sexual attraction and fulfillment. It's not your compatibility. I hope God blesses you with those things. But the absence of any of these things is an opportunity for you to leave your marriage. 
No. The heart of marriage is loving faithfulness to your spouse, the one to whom God has joined you as one flesh. So if your marriage is struggling and you feel like it would just be easier to walk away from it, remember how Jesus showed his love for you. Because as Jesus hung in agony on the cross, people mocked him. And you know, they walked past him and they shouted at him, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Come down. But you know Jesus didn't come down. He stayed. He stayed there and he died. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were most unlovely, most undeserving, and most ungrateful, Jesus still loved us. So remind yourself of this. And then ask God to help you fulfill the promises that you made on your wedding day. Because the heart of marriage is faithfulness. Do whatever it takes to value, to nurture, and to protect your marriage so that it might bear testimony to God's faithfulness to us in Christ. This leads on to my second point. And that is reconciliation is the priority in every marriage. Reconciliation is the priority. Yes, divorce may be permissible in the case of a spouse's sexual immorality, but that doesn't mean that it's necessary. Instead, it's to be seen as a desperate last resort, and every effort of reconciliation should be made to save your marriage. Perhaps it's no mere coincidence that this passage comes right after the parable of the unforgiving servant, where Jesus reminds us of the astronomical debt that we have all been forgiven and so urges us to extend the same kind of forgiveness to others. Seek to save your marriage at all costs. However, and thirdly, domestic abuse is never acceptable. Domestic abuse is an ongoing pattern of behavior where one person tries to control and manipulate the other spouse. This pattern of behavior isn't just physical. It can be sexual control, emotional manipulation. It can be social isolation, spiritual abuse, financial abuse. Domestic abuse of any kind is sinful and unacceptable. And we need to confront such behavior. We need to protect victims, which is most often women and children, from such behavior. And so if you're a victim of domestic abuse, let me urge you very strongly to remove yourself from that situation. Remove yourself and your children from the situation. Because the safety of you and your children is of first importance. And while reconciliation is a priority, like I just said, it may be that such harm has been done that it's not possible for that to happen. And separation needs to be permanent and a divorce needs to happen. I want to say that in such tragic circumstances, I want to say that divorce is appropriate in protecting victims. I'm not suggesting it's another grounds for divorce, but I am saying that it's an appropriate way of protecting victims. And I also want to say that domestic abuse is often hidden. And so we as a church 
family, need to look out for one another. We don't do marriages alone. We do marriages together as a family. And not just married couples and married couples, but singles and married. We work together for the nurture of all our marriages in this family. So we need to keep a lookout for each other. Because as often is the case, victims can uh, deny that this is happening and justify their spouse's behaviour. And often the perpetrator, the abuser, can be very good at hiding their behaviour. And so domestic abuse is often hidden. And so we need to keep talking with each other and we need to keep a lookout for each other. Fourth, remaining unmarried is a legitimate way of life. I've mentioned this already. I'm going to mention it again and give another brief word to it. Marriage is not the only option for the never married. It's good to remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. You're not subhuman. You're not missing out. And remarriage is not the only option for the, for the divorced. Perhaps you've been forced into singleness by divorce. You've been made eunuch by men, using the metaphor. Well, I want to say to you that remaining unmarried is a legitimate way of life. You're not missing out if you don't get remarried again. We as a church need to retrieve a biblical view of singleness which is a very positive view. And we need to set both marriage and singleness within the context of that great future marriage between Christ and the church. Fifth and finally, forgiveness is freely available in Christ. If you've been divorced, or you've turned to God in repentance and faith, I want to assure you very strongly of God's forgiveness in Christ. The price for God's forgiveness is very high. But Jesus paid for it when he died on the cross for our sins. And our forgiveness is total and it's complete. So if you still feel the weight of your past on your shoulders, hear these words of Jesus again. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. But let me also remind us that we're all sinners in need of God's forgiveness. And Christians have often stood in judgment over those who have been divorced and those who have been divorced and remarried. But no one can claim the moral high ground because none of us are without sin. We must remember that all of us need God's undeserved forgiveness, which was paid for so dearly by Christ's death on the cross. Brothers and sisters, divorce is a very sad reality. And it's a constant reminder that we live in a very fallen world. But I also want to say that despite this continuing reality of sin, the Bible makes it very clear that God has not given up on marriage. Jesus affirms it as good. And he affirms God's commitment to marriage as he intended it to be, a one flesh union between a man and a woman. So as we close, I want to finish with a story setting our eyes on the one flesh union and setting our eyes on the great marriage to come. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were at a marriage uh, of a friend. And that couple wanted to ask the oldest couple in the room for a piece of marriage advice. And they wanted the most wise piece of advice, so they wanted the oldest couple 
So they got every married couple to stand up. And they said, keep on standing if you've been married for over 10 years. So a lot of the younger couples sat down. Keep on standing if you've been married for over 20 years. And the more people sat down. Over 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. One elderly couple remained. And then uh, the bride and the groom asked them, what's your piece of advice for us? And the husband looked at his wife and they did that thing where they communicated without words. You know that thing? It doesn't often work for my wife and I, but I guess after 50 years it does. And he turned to the bride and the groom and he said five words. Stick close to the Lord. Stick close to the Lord. That's the key to marriage as God intended it to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of marriage. We thank you that you made it to be a one flesh union of a man and a woman. A union that you intend to be lifelong and permanent because of what it reflects and symbolizes. Father, we pray for those of us here who are divorced or divorced and remarried. Father, we pray for the assurance of your forgiveness in Christ for those who are truly penitent. For those who have been affected by divorced and have felt the hurt of it, we ask for your comfort and for your healing. For those who are married, Father, we pray for perseverance, for love and for faithfulness. And Father, for those of us who are single, we pray that you would remind us of what you made marriage to be, the union of Christ and the church. And we pray that you remind all of us of this. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.